the chapters that we are entering in are murky territory. Territories, plural. They are laws that as we read them, you think, what does this have to do with me? They're so detailed. They have to do with agrarian primitive cultures. Laws about slaves and masters. You think, what does that have to do with me? There is no slavery. But I want you to see an overriding principle in these laws. And that is that God loves men enough to get and reveal at their level things that deal with all of human life. That deal with slaves, masters, virgins, fathers, weddings. All sorts of things are covered in these chapters. And we ought to think, God, you're so awesome that you would condescend to the level of men and women in everyday life instead of God just giving a, uh, giving a blanket law, the Ten Commandments. Those are sort of uh, painting with the broom. Those are the broad principles. They're clean cut. Here's the Ten Principles, the Decalogue. But life is not neat and clean cut. It's very complex. And so God now in these chapters takes the broad principles of the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, and applies them to all of life. And so we want to get the broad principles. Some of it we're going to look at and say it doesn't apply, but we're certainly going to see the love of God as we go through it. So put on your thinking caps and we'll get ready. Let's say as we start tonight's study, and I know that we're all aware of this, but mankind needs laws. We need them. I know we live in an existential relativistic age, but we really need absolute laws. If you didn't have laws, you'd have anarchy. Now, there's a push more and more to broaden and push the envelope as to certain uh, legal requirements and restrictions in our country. Let's broaden the envelope. Let's broaden uh, the whole idea of what is obscene on television. Let's push the uh, area of the arts and say, free speech, free speech. The government ought to pay for our right to say whatever we want. Even if it is obscene, it's artistic. People are trying to push the envelope of what is lawful. Oh, we don't need that law. It's a restriction. You're, you're hindering us. We need laws. If you don't have laws, you have anarchy. I've been to a lot of countries in the earth, and certainly the United States is far from a perfect country. I think it's a godless nation, but still, I think it's the best around. Go to Somalia. You want to see what a, a country without laws is? Go to Mogadishu. There you can do whatever you want. I hate man. They're trying to push me into a little mold over here and limit my freedoms. Fine, go to Mogadishu. Go check it out. You have the freedom to do anything you want. As long as you don't impinge upon somebody else's freedom to do whatever they want, they might shoot you. They have every right to. There's no central government. Just whoever has the greatest power wins. We need laws because man is lawless. Paul wrote to Timothy and says, Laws are for the lawless, the disobedient, menslayers, kidnappers, perjurers, and whatever is against sound doctrine, which is a description of our society. We need speed laws. <laughs> I'm going to India in a few weeks where they don't have traffic laws, and it shows. It's very difficult to get around. You take your life in your own hands or in somebody else's hands who decides to swerve so they don't hit a holy cow and they'll kill a human being over an animal because... They, don't, they want to worship that God, that Brahma that bull. That's, that's the, the epitome of gods. So the man, the woman, they're expendable. 
Imagine what the Super Bowl would have been like without regulations. It would have been crazy. Emmett Smith wouldn't have been able to make those awesome plays that he made. <laughs> I love to get your reactions to that. By the way, some of you were worshiping at the altar of the holy pigskin last week. It's good to have you back. I thank God for laws. I thank God for the laws against murder and the others that we read about in chapter 20. My family enjoys the protection of the laws of the land, and I would say up to a certain point they're being pushed, as we have said. But we've also seen, and will see as we go on, that man was unable to keep law. The laws given to protect us, to guide us, but people have a tough time keeping regulations. Case in point, look how full the prisons are. That's a big problem for our country. They're so jam-packed. We're trying to figure out creative ways to deal with prisoners. So we take them to basketball games and buy them HBO and do all sorts of other crazy things. Let them out. Tonight we'll see how God dealt with it, whether you agree with it or not. And whether it was for a primitive time or not, that's all under debate. Uh, we're going to read about it. The chapters 21 through 24 deal with the nitty-gritty of life. And uh, as we said, they deal with some of the minute issues that chapter 20 just sort of paints over. And so, in verse 12, is beginning the laws concerning uh, violence, manslaughter. He who strikes a man so that he dies, shall not be, or shall be, surely be put to death. It's emphatic. Shall surely be put to death. Now keep in mind, this comes right after chapter 20 where it says, Thou shalt not kill. Or as properly translated in this version, You shall not murder. Yet on the heels of that, God gives a mandate that if somebody strikes a person, and the idea is voluntary manslaughter, premeditated manslaughter, as it's... Uh, elucidated in the following text, he shall surely be put to death. Capital punishment was instituted not at the law, but back in Genesis chapter 9, during the times of Noah, before there was any Mosaic law. It was something that was foundational from the beginning in every society. God tells in the next several chapters just who should be put to death and for what causes. And you're going to see it's very, very different than what we think today. As time went on, the Jews that received the law, which they called the Torah, the law, they then sought to interpret the Torah. And uh, as years went on, hundreds of years, thousands of years actually, they came up with what is called the Talmud, which is uh, a compilation of writings and interpretations of the law. The Mishnah, the Midrash, the Gemara, sermons about the law, interpretations of the rabbis, and the Sanhedrin, which you've heard about, the Pharisees in the New Testament, by that time had a very elaborate system of putting people to death. It, it's very gruesome as it sounds, but I thought you should at least know about it, so I brought a copy of a tractate in the Mishnah, which is part of the writings of the Jews about carrying out the death sentence. There were four prescriptions that the Sanhedrin saw for the death penalty. 
First was stoning. And this is what the rabbi said. The condemned man is thrown from a height twice, a height, twice his own height. So if you're six foot, 12 foot. If the fall did not kill him, stones were dropped on him until he died. The witness for the prosecution was the first to drop the stone. The killing was not by flinging stones, but by dropping boulders on him. That's from the Sanhedrin tractate, chapter 6, verse 4. Second, the Jewish Sanhedrin prescribed burning. The condemned man was placed up to his knees in dry dung or in pitch. A cloth lined with softer material was placed around his throat. The two ends were then pulled until the man's mouth was forced open. Either then molten lead or lighted wick was forced down his throat. That's from the Sanhedrin, chapter 7, verse 2. Now, I know it sounds gross, but Herbert Lau, in his article on Jewish crime in the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, describes this as a speedy and merciful death because it just didn't last too long. Then three, beheading. It was either done by the sword or the axe on the block. It seems that the criminal was tied to a post so that even in death his body would remain upright. For at least some of the Jewish experts in the law had the strange idea that the collapse of the body to the ground was an intolerable humiliation. And then finally, strangling, where a scarf-like cloth was round around the man's neck and the ends pulled together until he died. Those were basically how the Jews came to interpret these laws and how they should be carried out. And uh, some of them became very rigid in this. What bothers these Jews later on is that when the Romans come in and conquer the known world and Judea as well, they take away from the Sanhedrin the right to execute capital punishment. The Romans had substituted their capital punishment for crucifixion and only at the mandate of the Roman government. The Sanhedrin had no say in it at all. And that's why in the New Testament they had to get to Pilate so that the decree could come from the Roman government to put Jesus to death because the right of capital punishment had been taken away from them. Now verse 13, but if he did not lie in wait but God delivered him into his hand then I will appoint you, or I will appoint for you, a place where he may flee. These are cities of refuge, we find later on. Where that if murder was committed, and they didn't know whether it was voluntary or involuntary, if you were innocent or guilty, you could go to the city of refuge until the trial was formed, the jury was picked, and you had a fair trial. I'll tell you why this is important. It's because the kind of people we're dealing with were tribes people, like Bedouins today. And a strange but very non-negotiable principle was put into action. It was called the Avenger of Blood. The Avenger of Blood was somebody appointed by the family who lost somebody to murder the avenger of blood would chase the murderer or supposed murderer down and kill somebody in his family. It was a common practice. And so God wanted to avoid that kind of bloodshed and he had a place of refuge, a city of refuge, until a trial could be set. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor, to kill him with guile, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. The idea is this, even if a priest 
committed a premeditated crime. And he's supposedly this great man of God. Well, even if this priest committed a crime and is worshiping at an altar, or even the altar in the tabernacle later on, if he's guilty of premeditated murder, then you drag him from that altar. And since it's a premeditated crime, you take his life. In the medieval times, no, let me backtrack. The Greek, during the Greek times, the Greeks would allow people to touch the altar or the horns of the altar in many of the temples in the Grecian Empire, and they were protected by the Grecian government until a trial came into view. And this is from the practice in the Old Testament. In the medieval times, the churches allowed their buildings to become sanctuaries for criminals. If you rushed through the doors of a church and cried out sanctuary and the uh, person in charge heard you, they couldn't touch you until you had supposedly a, a fair trial. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. The idea is to kidnap a person, to enslave him, or to sell him as a slave, like his brothers, Joseph's brothers, did to him. And he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. I'm so glad my dad didn't find this verse. <laughs> my brothers and I would have been in hot water because we had some tough times growing up. Now, the rabbis, in reading this verse, have always interpreted it to mean exactly this. If you curse father or mother, that is, you invoke the divine name of God as a divine curse against your father and mother, then you're taking God's name in a blasphemous way, in vain, and that's where the death penalty comes in. You're using God to invoke a curse on your parents. The idea isn't saying, oh, you rat. The idea is using the divine name to curse your father or mother, and even then... It still had to be carried out by the, the courts. You know, the parents couldn't say, All right, man, you did it this time. I'm going to take you out back and kill you for that. The parents had no right to enact capital punishment alone. Nobody did. It was done by the elders in the gate. It was done by a reputable court of law in the Jewish religion. Now, as years go on, different people had different views of this. The Romans sort of picked up on this. But the Romans had developed a law they called the patria potestas, or the absolute right of a father to have control over his child. And even if he had an adult son, fully grown, the father could take the life of his son for any reason. He had absolute authority over his children. It could become very despotic, but at the same time, there was not much rebellion uh, in the Roman Empire as a child to his father, nor in uh, the Old Testament days with the Jews. Verse 18, If men contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time, and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. You pay medical expenses. And if a man beats his servant or his maidservant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive for a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Now, we don't agree with the ancient slave practices. Um, 
Boy, there's a lot we could get into on this. We've covered it in other studies, so I don't want to belabor the issue, but slavery was prevalent all throughout history until really recent times. It's still very much in practice in other countries today. Even though there's this formal outlaw of slavery, it's still very much practiced. In the New Testament times, 60 million people, half of the entire Roman Empire population, were slaves. What is interesting, though slavery, and I thank God that it is abolished, was so much warp and woof of the economic system of the Roman Empire that Paul never wrote, abolish slavery, picket at your nearest courthouse, up and down the streets of the central part of the town, and this is, Allah, this is not right. Instead, he said, very interestingly enough, be the best slave that you can. Serve and love your master so that your master will be drawn to Jesus Christ. Then you'll be brothers in Christ. And I will, through my epistles, instruct the master to love his slave. So the idea isn't say, let's change this corrupt form of government. The idea is, let's win their hearts to Christ by your conduct. When you win their hearts, you'll win their behavior. You'll change it from the inside out. Now, if you beat your servant with a slave, and I'm not saying you, I know that you don't do that. You don't have slaves. At least I hope you don't see people as your slaves. But you treat them and you love them for Christ's sake. But the idea is the rod, more literally. If you beat him with the rod, the idea is there was a rod of correction. The idea was the same when it came to the Proverbs where Solomon said, uh, he who spares the rod spoils the child. It was a specified implement for correction, not brutality. In fact, according to the Jewish writings, if a master was brutal to cause injury to his slave, the master would be beheaded. It did not give him license to brutally beat his slave. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no lasting harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. So a lot of the penalty was up to the husband as well as the judge in this case. But if any lasting harm follows, then you shall give him life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, and if a man strikes the eye of his servant or the eye of the maidservant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out his servant's tooth or his maidservant tooth, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So the death penalty was imposed for a variety of things. Now, I know that there's a lot of debate on it, and I, I'm not here to change your mind or get you to take one side of the issue of the death penalty. I, I will say that my opinion is, and so I'm qualifying it, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, though I think there's a lot of scriptural backup. I believe personally in the death penalty. I know that I open myself up. They'll be, oh, I'm going to write you a letter on that. <laughs> write it. I don't care. <laughs> Won't change the way I think. I see no moral problem with it. I see it as a deterrent for crime. There's been studies on it, and I know there's a lot of disagreement on it. I believe in it. Paul the Apostle believed in it. He believed in it for himself. It's one thing to say, yeah, get the guy. But Paul stood before a Roman court. 
He said, if I have done anything deserving of capital punishment, then do it. He was willing to take the death penalty if they could indict him on any charge, and they couldn't. There is a newspaper written by inmates in a Texas state prison, and they did a little research, and I have a, a little part of an article from this newspaper that says the majority of inmates believe the death penalty for prison murders might reduce violence within the prisons. And inmates favored the death penalty for murder, child abuse, and sex crimes. This is in one particular case. I know it's a small fraction. It's done by uh, one prison in Texas. But now listen to Professor Stephen Lawson, University of North Carolina. He studied the effects of execution and the rise and fall of the murder rate. He said, quote, Every execution of a murderer deters, on the average, 18 murders that would have occurred without it. And Professor Vandenhaeg, along the same line, said 99%, 99.9% of actual murderers prefer, prefer, for themselves, life imprisonment to death. And he concludes, what is feared the most would deter the most. Now, according to these experts, it's quite an awesome deterrent to crime. Besides that, let's get another biblical perspective. The Jews believed that restitution had to be made for the land itself, that if somebody murdered, the earth was defiled. The land of Israel was defiled, and restitution had to be made. In fact, listen to Numbers 35. Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of one who shed it. It is estimated that 85% of people who are incarcerated and then let free because of overcrowding and trying to rehabilitate them, 85% will go back. The cost to incarcerate these people who have committed these kinds of crimes, these murders, is equivalent to an Ivy League university education. It is very costly to society. And, of course, now we're taking them to games and letting them see television. And, you know, we're very, they get it better than a lot of people on the outside. Now, it might seem cruel and inhuman, but, again, I believe in it. I have no moral problem with it. People say, oh, it would be hard to be the person to actually pull the switch. I'm available. <laughs> Let it fall upon me then. Let me worry about getting my sleep at night. If there's a moral problem with it, then enact a law and find somebody who doesn't have that same moral problem. But, in verse 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is called lex talionis. Lex talionis, the law of retribution. That is, the punishment needs to match the crime. Now we look at this and say, oh, look, at that's horrible. God is this big bully in the Old Testament. No, he's not. The idea is mercy here. It's to limit vengeance. Knowing that vengeance is never satisfied with justice, God enacts this law, so that people won't go beyond in revenge. That's human nature. You take out one of my teeth, I'll get two of yours, buddy. And so to limit that, 
this extension of God's mercy, hand for hand, lex talionis, the punishment must match the crime. And then, if a servant's tooth is knocked out, then because of that, or a limb is taken, then he goes free uh, for the sake of that. Um, Again, this had to be done by a civil court. And Jesus in the New Testament says, You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you. And then he reworks this law, and what Jesus is getting at is simply this. By the New Testament times, people the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, had taken it out of the Jewish civil courts, many of them, and believed that you could have personal retribution. Personal retribution. You could go out and get somebody yourself. And Jesus said, no. That's not what it was intended to do. And he spoke about the law of love and forgiveness, but he wasn't taking it out of the civil public courts. He was telling people that you cannot enact personal revenge if somebody's come against you, which had become perverted during the New Testament times. Verse 28, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and has been made known to its owner, and he hasn't kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also be put to death. Here's an animal that has been known to be a vicious animal, proven to be a vicious animal. Now it's the responsibility of the owner to keep it confined or it's seen as a weapon and murderous. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him, whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter. According to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a manservant or a maidservant, then he shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If a man opens a pit... Or a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead beast shall be his. He's responsible to take care of that carcass. But money has to be paid. In Canaan, and that's the setting, in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, they had few rivers. They had... uh, sporadic rainfall many times and so they would dig wells and you can go to Israel today and if you do next time we'll show you some of the wells that were dug even in the middle of the desert and then huge holes were dug cisterns or pits uh, and then they were covered up on top by some kind of a covering and that was to store the water or as a well to take the water directly out of the ground the idea is this you dig a hole cover it up If you don't cover it up, your animal walks by, it could could kill or injure the animal, and you're responsible. So when you use the well, cover it up. Notice it does not say if a man falls into it. The assumption is a man will see where he's going and should look where he's walking. An animal doesn't have the same kind of perception, the same kind of acuity, and so it's not a law against a man walking, but uh, in favor of the animal. Isn't God good? giving these laws of how to get along with each other's animals. And so, lest you think that God has no feelings for animals, think again. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it. That The dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past and its owner has not kept it confined... He shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his own. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, 
he shall restore five oxen for one ox, or four sheep for a sheep. I got to tell you, I like this. I do. Now, we pay damages in our court system. You pay what you have caused as far as injury, bodily injury, or uh, physical property loss. They did it four or five times over. That is really going to be an impetus to keep this sort of stuff down. It's going to keep crime down. Knowing that you have to pay five times, and if you can't pay it in those days, you'd be sold as a slave. And perhaps if it was enacted today, you'd have to really work it off for a period of time. You'd have to work to pay that back. Now, in the New Testament, we remember a man who believed in this. His name was Zacchaeus. In the Gospel of Luke, Zacchaeus climbed up the tree to see Jesus as he was going through Jericho. And he saw Jesus. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, what are you doing in that tree? I'm going to eat lunch at your house. Let's go. So he goes to his house, spends all afternoon with him. And the words of Christ must evidently have touched his heart because he began to be changed. And he came and he said, Jesus, Master, I give half my goods now to the poor, and if I have taken anything by defrauding a person, I will pay it back fourfold. He's referring to this law. Jesus said, Surely salvation has come to this house, for surely this man is the son of Abraham. God touched his heart. If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Sort of the same way today, but I think laws have changed a little bit. I asked a police officer about this law and I said, what if somebody's breaking in the house? What is the right of protection for an owner? He said, you can't touch him unless he's coming at you to assault you with some kind of an assault weapon. And uh, the idea then, if somebody is breaking in, the, uh, the, the literal Hebrew breaking in is to dig through. Uh, the houses were made out of um, mud and uh, beams or wisps of uh, trees. And uh, a thief at night would dig through. And the idea, if he, if he has broken into your house, he won't stop at thievery. The assumption is he's going to kill you if need be. So you have the right, if he's on your property, to take his life, and it wouldn't be seen as murder. I heard of a story years ago, a news article, it was in Southern California, of a man who shot a guy breaking into his house. The article said that the man who was shot and wasn't killed sued the guy who was the homeowner and won. And the man who was the homeowner had to sell his property to pay for damages. We are so concerned about the rights of these criminals and not concerned about the rights of the victims. It's absolutely ridiculous. I won't get on this one. Let's go. (laughs) If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whatever, if it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he restores double. You see the difference if you take somebody's ox or sheep and you kill it or you sell it fourfold or fivefold, if it's still alive and they find it on you, you pay double. You don't just restore it back, hey, sorry man, here you go, you pay twice. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and from the best of his own vineyard. Even if your neighbor has a cruddy old vineyard or dumpy grain and you let your animal kind of filter into his property and kind of eat a little bit so he won't eat yours, the law required that you find the best of that guy's vineyard or his grain and uh, take from that. 
These are all wonderful deterrents against crime. And it seems that God is really interested in the rights of the victims rather than the criminals here. If fire breaks out, verse 6, and if you don't have a Bible tonight, I suggest you either borrow somebody's or get one in the back of your uh, chair. By the way, I heard that a lot of these Bibles aren't there. Somebody said, well, I looked, and for several rows they weren't there. It's because people are taking them who shouldn't. And so uh, if you have some at home laying around that you've taken, bring them back. Or restore it fivefold. All right. If a man uh, fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that, that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, if it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any beast to keep, so that it dies, is hurt, or is driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's good that the owner of it shall accept that and shall not make it good. You know, this to me is pure. If nobody saw you do something and you don't know who's right or who's wrong, the idea is this. You come and you take an oath. And if a person says, listen, I mean it. I'm serious. I'm honest here. I didn't do it. I really didn't do it. And I say that in all honesty before you and before my Lord. I didn't do it. Then you're to take his word, if nothing can be proven, and let it go. And his word is sufficient. What if he lied? He has to stand before God. The idea is that God is a better judge and an enactor of judgment than we are. And that will be seen in a few verses, how God takes care of the weak, the fatherless, and the widows. Um, Let's move down a little bit faster and look now at verse 16. We get to moral and ceremonial principles. If a man entices a virgin who is not engaged, the technical Hebrew term here, betrothed, that year of betrothal, and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If he induces her to consent to this, he's to pay the bride price so that she could be his wife. Now, according to Deuteronomy 22, that's 50 shekels of silver. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay the money according to the bride price of virgins. He still has to cough up the money because of the act that was done. The idea is that there is a heavy responsibility for the guy. Now, I don't want to carry this too far, but you know in dating relationships... Guys will often have a line, we call it. Something to get what he wants out of that girl. Oh, I love you. Listen, I'll always love you. And she might think that he means it, but if he's trying to get something out of her physically, and a lot of times he will say, I love you, because he wants sex. And sometimes she will give it because she wants love. But in this case, the idea is that the man is held primarily responsible. 
to withhold his passions and to not entice somebody to consent. And gals, I would just recommend to you if a guy comes on and says, you know, if you love me, then we can go further. Say, if you really loved me, you wouldn't ask. And obviously you don't love me and your history, Bubba. <laughs> Wake some of these guys up. Really. The Bible says love is patient. Love will wait. If you love me, no. Obviously, that's wrong because the Bible says love is patient and that's not love. So, sorry, it's over. Be a good way to handle it. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. And that's all it says here. It goes on to the next one. Whoever lies with a beast shall surely be put to death. The Septuagint, by the way, translates verse 18, a sorceress, a poisoner. The same idea, but the idea is that sorcery is such an uh, abomination that it, it poisons society. It's the bringing in of idolatry and consulting the stars and mediums and the practicing of the black arts. It can poison uh, the people, and, and God says that, in this case, uh, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. I've I got to just say here that I think this verse was really abused during the medieval times. Uh, some of the Europeans uh, during the medieval times used this verse to kill uh, what they called witches, and some of them were indeed, but they had uh, the church would conduct public uh, witch hangings. And in Germany alone, in the 16th century, some 100,000 women and children, uh, young children, were hung or burned. And yet, the church that practiced this was itself corrupted worshiping images and icons, practicing idolatry themselves, uh, practicing usury and uh, ripping the people off through indulgences. The same church that practiced abominations were killing others for a supposed abomination. It was, it was really something that uh, gave a bad taste in the mouth to the whole world uh, during this time. Whoever lies with the beast shall surely be put to death. Now you'd say, well, that sounds obvious. I mean, that's a, a reprehensible crime. Sexual relationships, bestiality is, is reprehensible. I mean, our society would never allow that, right? Just wait. Just wait. Probably in a few years you'll be hearing people scream for equal rights or special rights for those who just happen to have a relationship with an animal. Now, I know that sounds absolutely preposterous, but at one time the idea of special rights for homosexuals was seen as preposterous. Oh, it will never happen. Now they want you to pay for research, to collect data, to see if uh, some of these things are um, biological and so forth. And, and uh, my wife was up talking to some of the people in Santa Fe and they said, what, are you opposed to research? She said, no, I'm not opposed to data or research, but I'm opposed to paying for it with my taxes to further your cause as would be used by you wrongfully. And he just said, oh. <laughs> but just wait. Though this law seems absolutely, or this kind of thing seems preposterous, the envelope is being pushed. He who sacrifices to any god except the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. You shall not mistreat a stranger. Now listen to this beautiful, merciful segue into human rights here. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him. 
for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, when you get into your own land and you have other people who don't believe like you believe or do what you do, you were a stranger too. You were slaves once too. The Egyptians were known for hating uh, strangers. The Greeks hated non-Greeks. In fact, they had a term for anybody that was a non-Greek. They called them barbar, which was the Greeks' way of imitating their uncouth language. It just sounds like barbar. Hence the term barbarian came from the Greeks of anyone who was a non-Greek. They hated strangers. Now God says, you love them. You don't mistreat them. You guys know what it's like to be a stranger living in Egypt. These are resident aliens. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with a sword. Your wives shall be widows. Your children shall be fatherless. You know what God's doing? He's taken up the plight of the underprivileged, the disadvantaged. People that don't have husbands, people that don't have fathers who are too weak to defend themselves or nobody to plead their cause. God says, I'll stand in for them. I'll be the husband. I'll be the dad. And if you oppress or take advantage of these people, I'm going to hear about it. And then when, you, when they cry to me, I'm going to act against you who've oppressed them. I'm going to take up their cause. And my wrath, it says in verse 24, will become hot. Now this also went into the area of loans. If somebody was poor, you would loan them money without charging them interest. That's how the banks were run in ancient Israel. In fact, this is what has led to what Jewish communities call the free loan society. Helping other underprivileged Jewish people who can't afford to pay back the loan with interest to get a, get a loan interest free. It's a subsidy based upon the Torah as they have read it. And so don't take advantage of these people um, um, or God will take up their cost. Remember in chapter 23 of uh, Matthew, uh, the chapter where Jesus says to these religious leaders, woe to you hypocrites. Remember that chapter? He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, it's just heavy-duty condemnation. One of the things Jesus says woe about, it says, you devour widows' houses and for a pretense you make long prayers. Your condemnation is coming upon you in full measure, he said. What they would do is they would uh, find somebody who was underprivileged, like a widow in a house that they owned, and boot her out instead of giving her a long-term loan without interest. Say, well, it's my property. Kick her out. Then they go to the temple and make these long, righteous prayers. And that really got Jesus angry because they were doing it religiously. Ripping people off is always a crime. Doing it in the name of God is double duty. Charlatans who come and find, and it seems that religious charlatans find the underprivileged and try to appeal to the widows, the people who don't have money, the people who are lonely, and they'll write them these stupid, abominable computer letters that are straight from the pit as they say stuff like this. Now, this goes out to thousands of people. I've got letters like this at home. Dear Skip, my first name is used. I've never met this person before. It's done on a computer, underlined on a computer. 
As I was in my living room this week, the Lord laid you personally on my heart, and I was wondering about how you were doing. Oh, how I'd love to come in and sit with you sometime in your home and discuss these things with you, but I'm unable to. But I've been praying for you daily, and by the way, you could really help us out if you gave us a large sum of money for our ministry. Now, they don't know me from Adam. But thousands of these letters go out, and they say, The Lord laid you on my heart personally. Oh, yeah, right. And even if you can't afford it, they say, even if you're poor, give what you can. And I've seen some where they tell them to go ahead and dip into their savings accounts and God will richly bless you as you put in your seed, faith, gift. That is a ripoff. Well, how do you know? Maybe they're really sincere. Well, I saw one letter. I heard of one in California, actually, in the uh, Inland Empire, San Bernardino area. There's a a, a, a chicken... um, place, uh, sort of like Colonel Sanders, called Pale of Chicken, Pale O' Chicken. And uh, uh, the computer letter went to this chicken establishment, and it actually, the letter said, Dear Palo, the Lord laid you on my heart this week, Mr. Chicken, and I've been praying for you, Dear Palo, I'd love to come into your house and see all of the chicken family. It was absolutely ridiculous. It was to a chicken restaurant called Pale of Chicken. Charlatans. God will take up their cause when those people who have been ripped off cry out to God. I love that about the Lord. My people who are poor among you shall not be... Uh, here it is. My, uh, if you lend money to any of my people, verse 25, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. That makes perfect sense, and that's merciful, isn't it? If he's that poor, and the only thing he can give in exchange for his loan as a pledge is his only garment, well, that's his sustenance at night. It's going to keep him warm. You give it back to him the next night. If need be, get it the next day, but give it back to him that night. Be merciful to him. Special care. Now, in Deuteronomy um, 24, 22, I forget which, If uh, you have to loan a poor person some money and you have to take a pledge, not only can you not take his garment, but you can't take his grinding stone, his millstone, because that was something that was necessary for the home to grind the bread and the wheat and so forth. So God is taking care. Uh, Verse 27, For this is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Oh, be gone. All of the accusations that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. They're one and the same. God is gracious. God is taking care. Protecting his people and the victims of crimes. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. That has a lot of implications even for us today. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons, Uh, you shall give to me. Now, God will expand on this later on. And the idea is that everything that is first belongs to him. The idea is it's all yours, God, and I'm honoring you with the very first of my crops, my animals, my children. I dedicate them to you. Use them, Father, for your glory. God did not want leftovers. God never wanted the attitude, well, I'll give if I have any leftover to the Lord's work or for him to honor him. But... 
Hey, I need this for me. No, God said, right off the top, you honor me with the first. Likewise, you shall do with your ox and your sheep. It shall be uh, with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat any meat which is torn by beasts in the field, and you shall throw it to the dogs. Now, I'd like you to notice a couple of things. I want you to notice this verse, and then I want you just to look ahead of next week's study at verse 19 of chapter 23. I wanted to get through chapter 23 tonight, fat chance. But uh, notice the end of verse 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, those seem obscure, but I'd like you to remember those, believe it or not, to show you how men can corrupt that which is divine and that which is meant to be practical. Both of these laws had a setting to them, a background to them, but later on became interpreted out of their context and became strict Jewish regulations that are put in practice and uh, enforced upon Jewish people today. Uh, Look at verse 31. You shall be holy men. You shall not eat any meat which is torn by the beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Now, originally, it meant exactly that. You have an animal out in the field that gets torn by beasts. You don't eat it. You say, oh, but it's so convenient. I mean, there it is. It's free food. No, it could be diseased food. And God was, it was a health measure for them. But the Jews through the years, the Talmud, the Mishnah, Midrash, Gemara, the teachings of the rabbis, have taken this now to mean that what God is saying about is all food has to be ceremonially purified by a rabbi or a rabbinate group of people, and it's called kosher. So, well, if that's not kosher, I won't eat it. Well, what's kosher? Well, it's because of this verse. can't be torn by the beasts of the field. That has, has nothing to do with pronouncing certain foods kosher. Then there's another verse. Uh, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It seems that this was given because the fertility practices of the ancient pagans is that they would take and take a, a, a young kid or even a fetal goat, boil it in the milk of its mother, uh, milk the uh, female goat, boil it in the milk and, and, and eat it and use that as part of their pagan fertility rites so that their crops would grow and their women would have children. That's its primary interpretation. You don't take a kid and boil it in its mother's milk. It's plain and simple. But it has been taken out of its context to mean you can't eat meat and dairy products together. Have you ever seen the kosher laws kept that if uh, a strict Orthodox Jew drinks milk or uh, some kind of a cream, you can't put meat inside the same stomach because the churning of the stomach acids is boiling the meat with the milk. It's completely taken out of context, and so you see strict Jews today observe dairy and meat. You go to Israel, typical Israeli breakfast, it's raw vegetables, gefilte fish, crackers. At lunch, if there's meat, they won't have butter or any dairy product. You will separate the dishes of this is uh, uh, for dairy dishes, this is for meat dishes, and uh, there's two separate sets of dishes to keep a kitchen kosher, all because of this verse. It has been taken, it's been reapplied, it's been added by the sages, and it's come to mean something entirely different. 
And we always get asked that question in Israel. Why do they get so hung up on the dairy and uh, uh, the meat? And it's primarily because of this verse, but it's a verse taken out of context. So, it's a good lesson in this. A text of the scripture must always be interpreted by its context. The text that surrounds it, the history that surrounds it, the culture that surrounds it, what did it mean to the people of that day and age, why was it written, what was the result. Before we take it to interpret it to ourselves today, we have to answer those questions. And I think this has been an unfortunate misinterpretation of the law, just like the Jehovah Witnesses have done with blood transfusions. It says that you can't drink blood. And so they infer that to mean you can't have a blood transfusion. How in the world they got that one, I don't know. But many innocent people have died because of a wacky interpretation. So the word is its best own interpretation. Made it through a couple chapters next week or next time, Lord willing. We'll make it through. Now, the next chapter deals again with some of these uh, laws, and some of them are very fascinating. It's going to tell you a lot of, actually, uh, a lot about uh, riots, protests, and gangs uh, in the next chapter. There's some uh, interesting thing God, things that God has to say about that. You'll see God's love for his people and giving them a Sabbath law, and giving them a sabbatical year, and giving them a jubilee year. Every 49 years, the 50th year was the year of the blowing of the trumpet or freedom, and we'll discuss that. And then we get into an awesome section of scripture about the tabernacle, which according to the New Testament is a model of the throne of God in heaven. And uh, we'll give you um, a little map of the tabernacle, we'll discuss its layout, we'll tell you about how some of the Jews now are trying to rebuild their temple according to uh, Old Testament specifications to have all of the articles that we'll read about in the next several chapters in Jerusalem in a temple that they seek to be rebuilt, which is again a part of prophecy. So fascinating stuff coming up ahead. Let's pray. Lord, I cannot help but think of the words of our Lord Jesus who said to the very religious people of his day, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. You're so worried about picky little things when you have neglected the greater issues of the law, mercy, justice, compassion, and certainly, Lord, most of all, the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, you have demonstrated in your word just how much you love human beings to be a part of our world and to give us regulations out of a heart of love so that we would know as sinful men how to deal with each other in a just and equitable and loving manner. Lord, we do pray for our nation. And we pray, Father, that hearts of men and women would be turned to the Lord Jesus Christ through our witness, that as hearts change, thus the way people feel and think change, behaviors will follow. We thank you for this time that we were able to spend in your word tonight. And Lord, I also want to thank you for these men and women who are behind me and with me leading worship. And just how inspirational the songs that they lead us in are to us. They're jubilant. They're rejoicing. They bring us into your throne room. We thank you for the heart that they display with it, O oh Lord. We're blessed, Father, and we thank you for this fellowship, this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing to the Lord.
glory of the Lord. Come behold the Lamb. Come and know the mercy of the mercy of the King.
the overriding principle of the law is the love of God. And the love of God is always better than experiencing the wrath of God. That's why God sent Jesus. And now he relates with us today, not based on the Old Testament law, but through his Son, Jesus Christ, which means no matter how we've broken the law, and everyone in this room has, we can all be forgiven and given a fresh start by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on our behalf. That's the ultimate expression of God's love. And we invite you after the service to come back to the prayer room to my right, to your left, through those doors over here, and meet with some of the counselors. Give your heart to Jesus. Know his love and know how God can relate to you in that level. I pray this week that you will grow in the Lord and that if indeed you are one of those widows or fatherless or deprived or underprivileged, that God would take up your cause. God would provide for you in a special way that you'd sense his love this week, that he'd put his strong arms around you and stick up for you and defend you, and that you'd really sense that. And that in your difficulty, you would learn God's incredible provision. In Jesus' name, God bless you. 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 God bless you.